following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. 1 Kings chapter 21. And we're going to pick up at verse 1 and read down through verse 24. And it came to pass... After these things, against 1 Kings 21, it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near, next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you. I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel his wife said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel? Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. So it was. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is, in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered And also taken possession. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, 
In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now for Christ's sake and for your glory's sake that you would grant to us your spirit as we seek to open up this sobering portion of your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the world that that we live in is a world that is uh, full of uh, injustices. Probably some of you have been the victims of injustice or or abuse. And I I was reading a sad tale of injustice a few years ago. Some of you who are from New Jersey area may remember this. In June 17, 1966, uh, two men walked into the Lafayette Grill in Patterson, New Jersey, and shot three people to death. Reuben Hurricane Carter, a celebrated boxer and an acquaintance of his, were falsely charged and wrongly convicted of the murders in a highly publicized, racially charged trial. The outspoken boxer continued to maintain his claim of innocence and became his own jailhouse lawyer. And eventually, after serving 19 years, Carter was released and proven innocent. However, he had lost the most productive years of his life. Between the ages of 29 and 50, he was deprived of his career, his wife, and seeing his children grow up, and he could never get those years back. Clementine was a 17-year-old little girl in Rwanda. One day, militia troops came down on her village. She and her family took refuge in the church, but there was no safety there. Uh, The troops gunned people down right before her eyes. And Clementine tried to run, but the soldiers grabbed her. They drove her into the bush where she was tortured and raped. Hours later, someone found her and took her to a hospital, but it was understaffed. She received no treatment for her wounds or care for her rape and torture. But there was a Belgian doctor there who flew her to Europe where she had surgery And there the doctors discovered that Clementine had only endured part of the the horror. The soldiers had left her HIV positive. And it wasn't long before she had full-blown AIDS. Injustice. How do we cope with something like that? Does the Bible have anything to say about the injustice and evil that we see? and sometimes experience in this world. Yes, it does. It does so in many places. And the passage that I just read to you is one of them. In the passage we just read, coveting leads to discontent, and pouting 
Discontent leads to evil schemes, leads to the abuse of power, leads to cruelty and murder, and it's all for a vineyard, just a vineyard. Now, I want to give you an an overview of this event under two headings and to draw out some of the lessons here for us. Uh, You know, I do want to say this. In my Old Testament studies, when I'm preaching through the Old Testament, two of my favorite people to read are Dale Ralph Davis, he's a more modern guy, and William Taylor who is an older guy from back in the 1800s, and both of them were tremendously insightful and helpful in the reading and study of this passage. In fact, I really recommend those two men for your own devotional reading. But I want to, to, the way I want to do this, I want to divide these verses into two major headings. First, we have the perpetration of a heartless injustice, and then secondly, the intervention of divine retribution. First of all, the perpetration of a heartless injustice. This is described for us in verses 1 to 16. The movement of the story can easily be divided up and summarized into four segments. First of all, we have Ahab's desire. Ahab had a problem, as it were. He had a second home in Jezreel, about 20 miles northeast, north-northeast of the capital of Samaria. A man named Naboth owned a vineyard there right next to the royal estate. Well, Ahab wanted that vineyard. It was a desirable spot, no doubt, that could greatly enhance his property. A great place for a vegetable garden, he thought. Perhaps his royal gardener or landscape architect had pointed that out to him. And Ahab could just see it in his mind's eye. He could imagine the pleasure of owning that spot and the beauty of the garden that he would grow there. So Ahab made an offer to Naboth. It was a very reasonable and fair offer. Really, it was a good offer. He said, verse 2, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. And for it, I will give you a, a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. It's a fair offer, or so it seems, on the surface. But Naboth responded, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Now, we need to be clear on what exactly was going on here. Was Naboth just trying to be stubborn? Was he just being hard to get along with? No, he refused Ahab's offer for good and righteous reasons. Naboth is not a bad man. His response to evidence is that he was a good man. He appears to have been a godly man. For what was the basis of Naboth's refusal? Well, we have to understand what land represented in Israel. Raymond Dillard in his commentary gives a helpful explanation. God had promised to Abraham and his descendants that they would occupy the region after 400 years of servitude. When God redeemed his people, he would not just bring them out of bondage, he would also bring them into an inheritance, the land that he had promised. Redemption for Israel was not simply escape from slavery to a foreign power, but also provision for the future. Now, because the land represented the fruit of the nation's redemption, God commanded in Leviticus 25 and Numbers 36 that it remain in the hands of the families to which it was originally allotted. In other words, a family was never to sell their inheritance. Now, the law did provide in case of hardship or debt for a man to lease his land for a period of time, but it can never be sold outright. 
No one would be deprived of the inheritance God had provided for him in the redemption of Israel. It could not be sold, and if it was leased due to hardship, provision had to be made for it eventually to be redeemed and returned to the original family. So you see, Naboth was taking a stand on the basis of biblical principle. When he answered Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my father's to you. Well, when Ahab heard this, he went to his house, uh, resentful and upset. He lay down on his bed, turned his face away, and he began to pout like a little baby. And the second thing we have then is his conversation with the infamous Jezebel. In comes his wicked wife, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a Phoenician. Her father was a Phoenician king of Sidon. She had grown up a Baal worshiper, and she was very instrumental in the propagation promotion of Baal worship in Israel. And she was Ahab's wife. He had married this woman. And she comes in, and she wants to know why her husband refused dinner and why he's so upset. Ahab tells her what happened. And you can imagine she gives him a look of disgusted amazement. She can't believe what a pansy he is. As another has paraphrased it, she says, in effect, Ahab, are you a king or are you a wimp? No local yokel grape picker is going to stand in the way of this regime. Your problem, Ahab, is that you still think of a king as subject to the law. You must get it through your head that what the king wants is law. You see, uh, this was Jezebel's Phoenician worldview. Abraham's behavior was foolish to her. She remembered growing up in her daddy's palace, the king of Sidon. He would never act in such a disgraceful, wimpish manner. If he wanted something, he took it. He was the king. If people try to resist your will, you just run over them. She tells Ahab, I will give you the vineyard. Well, Ahab is content to not ask any questions and to just let Jezebel do her thing. And next we have, thirdly, Jezebel's action. She sends letters in Ahab's name to the elders and nobles in Naboth's town. She gives very careful instructions. They are to proclaim a fast. Sounds very religious. Proclaim a fast. Set Naboth at the head of the people and have a couple of lowlifes there to bear false witness against him. Have them accuse him of cursing God in the king and then take him out and stone him to death. And it's a testimony, by the way, to the corruption, to the lack of backbone in the officials of the town that Jezebel could count on them to carry out her scheme. Not a one of them had the nerve to speak up and to stop this. They all went along with it. And did you notice that there's a kind of religious injustice here she has them call for a fast to give the whole proceeding an air of of religiosity it's obvious that Jezebel knew the law of Moses this was not only to be a religious injustice it was to be legal injustice she insisted on two witnesses as the law of Moses required likewise the penalty was the one stipulated by Moses for the crime So the whole proceeding was conducted in a way as to give it an air of religiosity and legality. But it was a farce. And it was all so cold and heartless. Fourthly, the whole affair ends with Ahab's problem solved. He got what he wanted. And all is well. Or so it seems. Verse 15 
And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is alive, is not alive but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now let's just pause here before we consider the rest of the story to make a few applications. First of all, here we're reminded, and this is kind of a side note really to the main theme I'm really hitting, going to be hitting on in this sermon, but we are reminded here that happiness is not to be found in the things this world has to offer. Here was Ahab upon the throne of Israel. He has every comfort that money could buy, every luxury that wealth and rank can provide. But is he satisfied? No, he's still desiring more. And when that one new thing he desires was denied to him, he's filled with sadness and self-pity. Such is the nature of the things of this world. If you pursue your true happiness in those things, my friend, they will never satisfy you. Whatever you acquire, whatever possessions, whatever honors, whatever accomplishments will never satisfy. There will always still be that one possession you don't have yet. That one honor that you haven't received yet. That one accomplishment that you haven't attained yet that will torment you and leave you dissatisfied. Remember the Persian Lord Haman in the book of Esther. There he is, promoted by the king above all of the other princes. He's just come from the imperial palace where he's been banqueting with the king and queen themselves. And in his pride, he then gathers his wife and his children around them and around him and he tells them about all the honors that have been loaded upon on him. He tells of all his riches. He tells of his being promoted above everyone else in the court. He tells of how he alone was allowed by the queen to come to the king's banquet with her. All his ambitions are being gratified before his eyes. But then he remembers what happened when he left the palace. That Jew, Mordecai, in the king's gate, who refuses to bow down to him when he passes by. And when he thinks of that, all of his happiness fades, the joy vanishes from his countenance, and he says, yet all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And there are many today whose lives are deformed and darkened because some Naboth denies them a vineyard. Or some Mordecai refuses to bow to them. And you see, the sad thing is that even if they had this thing that they so desire or the things they so long for, they would still be unhappy. Once that was obtained... The desire for more, the desire for something else will continue to leave them dissatisfied. And such is the way of man by nature in his sinful, covetous heart. Never satisfied. The honors and pleasures and possessions and accomplishments. You know, when you, when you, it's always a sad story, isn't it? When the famous movie star gets old. The famous athlete can no longer play football or baseball anymore and How often they die very bitter, unhappy people. Or the wealthy man who has everything that the world could offer you, think you'd be happy, he's got everything. And he's miserable and unhappy. 
The covetous heart in man is never satisfied. There's always one thing more because you see the problem with such a person is that there is one thing that is needed. Just one thing. But it's not what he thinks. There is one thing needful and that one thing is Christ. The Christ who's speaking of the things of this world said, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But then speaking of himself... And the salvation that he gives, he said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Perhaps you're here and you're like this evening and you're like Ahab, unhappy, like a spoiled child who is never satisfied. Augustine was right when he said, of God you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace till they rest in you Jesus says come to me and only then will you find rest for your soul secondly here in the murder of Naboth we have a picture of what is often the lot of God's people in the world the story about Naboth and Jezebel or Naboth and Ahab that's who it's about but it's it's about more than that This event, in many ways, is representative and typical. The narrative is saying to us the same thing the Apostle Peter says to us in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, when you as one of God's people, you as a Christian, find yourself being treated unjustly, when you find yourself being abused and suffering, when that happens... Don't think it's strange. In other words, instead, prepare yourself for this. Realize, be ready for the fact that this is often the lot of God's people in this evil world. I wonder what Naboth's friends, I wonder what they would have thought about the prosperity gospel being hyped by televangelists today. Let me quote to you from something Benny Hinn said. He said, he, that is God, he, God, promises to heal all, everyone, any, any, whatsoever, everything, all our diseases. That means not even a headache, sinus problem, not even a toothache, nothing. No sickness should come your way. So men like Benny Hinn preach a God who just longs to pamper us in every way, even to provide us with complete dental health. And to free us from every pain, every difficulty and suffering in this life. Well, I wonder how that theology fits with the corrupt court that tried Naboth. Where does it fit when the stones began to pelt him and to bash in his brains? And he's left there in a heap of pulverized flesh. Was it because he was an ungodly man? An unrighteous, unbelieving man? No, he was a faithful servant of God. And yet this is what happened to him. The Bible, my dear friends, is not pessimistic, but it is honest. And it tells us that in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you also. Thirdly, we're also reminded here that such injustices will often be inflicted upon God's people by the governments of the world. This was government-sponsored injustice. 
that executed Naboth. Naboth suffered at the hands of a greedy king and his activist, manipulative wife. Government-sponsored injustice. We're going to see that, more of that in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 6. We see it in the early church from the Roman government. And so it has been throughout history. Though government is ordained of God and serves a righteous purpose when it's properly administered, governments have also often been the oppressors and the persecutors of God's people. And it's still happening throughout the world. Now, we've been spared a lot of that in the history of our nation. Our government, on the whole, has protected our liberties and our freedom to worship God, but we need to be prepared. Listen, Satan still hates the church as much as he ever has, and we need to be prepared for what might happen in the future. Especially as we see the things that are happening now. These are the things that often happen and have often happened in the history of the church and God's people. Well, we consider the first part of this narrative. The perpetration of a heartless injustice. Now let's consider secondly the intervention of divine retribution. At the end of verse 16, it seems as though the, prophet, uh, the perfect crime has been carried off Uh, Everything has been sewed up now, nice and neat. The deed is done and they got away with it. The Samaria political machine has run right over that religious grape picker Naboth. And there was nothing to stop it. Now all that's left is for Ahab to enjoy the spoils and down he goes to take possession of his vineyard. He can't wait. He can't wait. But there is a God in heaven who sees and knows and from whom nothing can be hidden. And it's here that Elijah steps back onto the stage. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, sending him with a pronouncement of judgment on Ahab. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord. Now, I try, try to imagine this. Try to imagine Ahab here. He's kind of like a silly child. And you know, now he's got what he wanted. He excitedly rides down to check out his new piece of property. He quietly is walking through the vineyard. He's ex- inspecting everything with a satisfied smile on his face. But as he turns the corner to start down another row... Suddenly there in front of him is a rough-looking man dressed in animal skins with a leather belt around his waist. He immediately recognized him. It's Elijah, the man of God. His heart drops. His conscience pierces him. He begins to tremble. Verse 20, he says to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah replies, I have found you. Because you have sold yourself to do evil. And then he tells Ahab what God is going to do. Verse 21. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, 
the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. Now, as you find out later in 1 Kings, all of that doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen for a while. But it will happen eventually. All of it, just as God said it would. Later, when Ahab shows a little remorse, kind of a, a sort of, a, you know, a fear, God postpones for a time the disaster that would fall on his house. But there is an important distinction that has to be made between postponement and cancellation. They're not the same thing. God's judgment doesn't always fall immediately. For a time it's postponed, but that doesn't mean it's canceled. Later, all of these things happen just as God said they would. Ahab is killed in battle, and the dogs lick up his blood in the very place where Naboth's blood was shed. Jehu, one of his generals, leads a rebellion and executes all 70 of Ahab's sons. Jehu's men then throw Jezebel out of the window of the palace, and we read that some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled her underfoot. And later when they came to bury her, there was nothing left but her skull and the feet and palms of her hands. Those mangy, dirty, back alley dogs outside the palace had devoured her flesh. There's an old southern preacher. He, he was a southern Baptist preacher. He was kind of a famous preacher. He pastored Bellevue Baptist Church for many years. and He pastored First Baptist Church in New Orleans. He was in Bellevue Baptist Church uh, in Chattanooga before Adrian Rogers. And uh, his name was R.G. Lee. And R.G. Lee has a famous sermon on this chapter. And the, and, and the name of it is Payday Someday. It's a famous sermon. We used to listen to it in seminary because this guy is a, is a master of words. I mean, he was a poet with words. It's a, he, I forget how many times in his life he preached that sermon. Payday Someday. Now, what, maybe you can go and listen to it sometime. But whatever you think about the sermon, I like the title because that's what's happening here. There's a payday someday. God may appear to be silent. It may have seemed that he wasn't there and he didn't care. On that dreadful day when Naboth was stoned to death in Jezreel, Jezebel prided herself and how well she had pulled it off. Ahab stopped pounding and was looking forward to many days of enjoying his new possession. All seemed well. They seemed to have gotten away with it. But there is a payday someday. And there will always be a payday someday for those who try to ignore God and his law. He is there. He sees. He knows. And he will take vengeance upon the wicked. May not happen immediately. Many days or many years may go by. It may not even happen in this life. But there is a payday someday. Ultimately, eventually, it will come. And God will set all things right. 
Well, what's the message of this event for us who are here tonight? I've already been making applications, but what specifically is the the message of this second half of the story, the intervention of divine retribution? Well, first of all, there is a word of consolation here for the people of God. The consolation is this. God is judge, and in due time, he will bring justice upon the earth. There is mystery in God's ways. Why didn't God stop this from happening in the first place? Why did he, for example, preserve baby Moses from Pharaoh's population control program, while in the case of Naboth, he was not preserved? Why were so many toddlers massacred in Bethlehem by Herod's Gestapo while the toddler Jesus escaped? Why was James beheaded by Herod Antipas while Peter escaped a similar fate when an angel broke him out of jail? Why do God's people sometimes suffer injustices in this life and nothing happens? Sometimes God acts in judgment, but often he doesn't, at least not immediately. And listen, questions like that can... Can, can eat at us. They can. They can trouble us and eat at our hearts. Well, we can say that God is sovereign and wise and he has his reasons and that's true, but the message of 1 Kings 21 is that there is a payday someday. There will be justice. Divine justice. Maybe not immediately, But it will come. Divine restraint is not to be equated with divine indifference. Postponement is not the same as cancellation. God will judge. He will execute justice. Sometimes in lesser ways in this life, but ultimately and finally and completely at the last day. And I say, brothers and sisters, that this is a great word of comfort and consolation for God's people. You say, but pastor, how can that be a word of consolation? Well, brothers and sisters, though we're not to return evil for evil or take vengeance into our own hands, that does not mean that it is wrong when people do wicked things to us or to people we love or in the world in general to feel that they deserve God's judgment and to approve of, their ju- of God's judgment for their actions if they do not repent. It's not wrong to feel grieved and troubled and frustrated that they get away with it. It's not wrong to feel that way. There's an important balance here. They seem to get away with it, that is. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands. But that doesn't mean that all vengeance is sinful. No, there is God's vengeance. And that vengeance is holy, just, and right. And it is never wrong to feel in our hearts that someone who does evil deserves judgment. Even if it is someone who does evil against us. Why? Because according to the Bible, they do deserve God's judgment. Now if that's so, how can it be sinful to feel that they do? To feel that they deserve God's wrath is to feel rightly and in accordance with truth. Read the imprecatory Psalms. 
where the psalmist calls upon God to punish the wicked. Read Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounces woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. The words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Galatians 1.18, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Hear the words of the souls under the altar. Revelation 6, 9 to 10, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now some people have, some, some folks have real problems with passages like that. We can be so held captive by the moral callousness and the sentimentality of West, our Western culture that those words seem harsh and even immoral, but they shouldn't. You'll deny your own psychology as a Christian. You'll subject yourself to the bondage of false guilt if you believe that it's wrong to feel righteous indignation at sin. Of course, the real test as to whether it's just a selfish feeling or truly a concern for what is right and what is honoring to God is that you feel that way about your own sins as well. But again, my point is there's nothing wrong with a sense of righteous indignation. As long as there is hope, as long as there is time, we should hope and pray that men will repent and be saved. But if that wicked person will not repent and does not repent, it's not wrong for God's people to approve of God's judgment and even to appeal to it. Why? Because it is right for God to punish the impenitent. Is it right for God to send people to hell? Is it right for God to punish the impenitent? When God punishes the wicked in hell for eternity, he's not doing something that's sinful. He's not doing something that's wrong. Revelation 19 depicts the saints in heaven as crying, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For true and righteous are your judgments. And again they said, Hallelujah! As their smoke rose up forever and ever. As we see men casting reproach upon God and his law, snubbing their noses at Christ, perpetrating lies, promoting and doing evil, it should grieve us, it should cause us to pray that they might repent, that they might be saved, that God would have mercy upon them, but it should also cause us to long for the day when God will vindicate himself upon his enemies. We commit Vengeance to God, yes. But we commit vengeance to God. To the God who judges righteously. Who in the end will set all wrongs right. In 1661, what was called the drunken parliament of Charles II sentenced James Guthrie, the Scottish covenanter, to be hanged at the cross of Edinburgh, his head to be struck off and publicly displayed, his estate to be confiscated, his children declared incapable in all future days of holding any office, possessions, lands, or goods in the kingdom. After the deed, Guthrie's headless corpse was placed in a coffin and brought into the church aisle, 
where a number of highly respected ladies prepared his body for proper burial. One gentleman present noticed that some of the ladies dipped their napkins, or we might call them their, their scarves or handkerchiefs, in the blood of the martyr. And he accused them of performing a piece of, quote, popish superstition. One lady spoke up in, in defense. We intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember. The innocent blood that was spilt. You see, these ladies were appealing to God's justice. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the things that gives us hope. As God's people, when we see all of the evil in the world, the judge of the earth will do right. This world in its present state is full of injustice. God's people often meet with sad injustices and lies, and we see so much injustice and evil running rampant in our society. Some of you here today, tonight, have been the victim of abuse and some very sad injustices in your life. Some very grievous, wicked things have been done to you. And here's the most painful thing of all. Many of those injustices will never be made right in this life. When all is said and done, there is nothing that can be done about it. And this is one of the saddest realities of of life in this fallen world. And if this world alone is all that there is, it would be enough to drive us to despair and to make us bitter people. Solomon speaks of this in Ecclesiastes. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Notice how Solomon speaks, for example, of the injustice of oppression in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He says, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now that's a pretty bleak picture. There's no justice. Therefore it's better to just die. Or it's better to have never lived. Now we need to understand that Solomon is speaking here of what he calls life under the sun. That's a key phrase in Ecclesiastes. That's language that he uses to refer to life in this world considered apart from God. Life that is lived without a view to eternity. Without a view to the world to come. And he's telling us that there is so much injustice in this present world that if life under the sun is all that there is, it would have been better to have never lived. Notice back in chapter 3 verse 16. He speaks of the injustice that is often found in the realm of government. And even in the courts where justice is supposed to be upheld. Verse 16. Chapter 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun... In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. Again, it's a pretty bleak picture. But this is the reality of life in this present evil world. This world is full of injustice. Often God's people are the victims 
of injustice. So does this mean that there will never be justice? No. And that's the message of 1 Kings 21. Our ultimate hope is in God, who in his time will make all things right. Notice what Solomon says in the next verse, verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Solomon knew that there is a day coming when God is going to make all things right, a day when every case will be reopened. And God will judge, and Christ will judge, and justice and righteousness will prevail. The wicked will be cut off from the earth, and Christ and his people will be vindicated before the entire moral universe. If not now, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired by all those who believe. So there is consolation in this for God's people. Those who have been oppressed, those who have been abused by others, those who grieve over the evil in and, and our society, God sees and God knows. As for you, as for me, do not return evil for evil. Don't become bitter. Be eager and ready to forgive. Praying that there will be repentance. Like Jesus, when reviled, revile not again. But commit your cause to him who judges righteously. And remember, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And also, brothers and sisters, remember that we have a Naboth who understands the sufferings of his people. When you read 1 Kings 21, and you read about the two false witnesses... Who accused Naboth? Does it remind you of anything? It reminds me of two other false witnesses. The false witnesses who accused our Lord Jesus. There is a Naboth in the New Testament. It is Jesus Christ who in a sense stood in Naboth's very same position. Matthew 26, 59 and following you read... Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, even though many false witnesses came forward. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, Jesus has walked where Naboth walked and where God's people walk when they suffer injustice, and there is comfort in that for God's people. As with the Hebrew children, Christ may not keep us out of the fire, but he will be with us in the fire and he is able to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities he understands and he is able to give grace to endure it and as it was with Jesus on that first Easter morning God will vindicate his people on the last day and then finally the message of this this for those of you who are lost and outside of Christ you're not converted you're not in Christ you know what the message of this passage it's not one of comfort for you it's one of warning the lesson for you is this in the end there will be a price to pay for your sins against God Elijah said to Ahab you have sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. He sold himself to evil and the price he paid was his soul. 
My friend, consider this lesson well. If you don't repent and run to Jesus Christ for mercy, there is a payday someday for you. The lesson for you here can be summarized in these words. Be sure your sins will find, find you out. Everything may seem to be fine now. You snub your nose at Christ and the gospel. You ignore his word. You determine to go your own way, to do your own thing, to pursue your own lusts and your own desires, and there are no consequences now. Life is good. It seems as though God doesn't even notice or care. Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the son of men, sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Be sure your sins will find you out. You better be sure of it. You may have hidden your sins from mom and dad or from others. No one else may know about the things that you have done. Life is good as you enjoy your vineyard. But don't be deceived. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And there is a payday someday. Jesus said that there is nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. God says to the psalmist, These things you have done. And I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. You say, those are strong words. Yes, but they're God's words. And my friend, he means it. He means it. But my friend, it doesn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way for Ahab and Jezebel. There is hope for sinners. God says, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn, turn from your evil way. For why will you die? The gospel goes out, repent, and God will have mercy upon you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save them not at the expense of God's justice, But he himself endured the wrath and punishment justice requires in the sinner's place upon the cross. God set forth his son as the sinner's substitute. He took the hell that we deserve so that all who repent, sincerely repent of their sins and put their trust in him might be forgiven and saved. There was a payday one day on a hill called Golgotha. There Christ received the wrath we deserve and on the third day he was raised from the dead. God declaring that this sacrifice was accepted and sufficient. You see my friend, your sins and my sins must be paid for. They must be paid for, every single one of them. And that payday will either come upon your own head to your own eternal damnation or it will fall upon the substitute Jesus Christ, and you'll be spared if you repent and embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior and your only hope of salvation. 
Have you done that? Will you do that? I plead with you tonight. The words I speak to you are the words of truth. May it not be that one day you're you're standing before God as God exposes all of your sin and judges you and is about to cast you into hell. And you remember that night Pastor Smith preached on Naboth. Oh, how foolish I was to leave that service, to turn away, to stifle it, to try to forget about it. Listen, God is speaking to you tonight. Today is the day of salvation. Now, while it is called today, turn from your sins and run to Christ and give him no rest until you know that you belong to him. Well, may God bless his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word tonight and we, we need to remember these things. Lord, we, your people, we often are so frustrated and troubled by all the evil around us and we think there is just despair and no hope, but we know that there is a God in heaven There is a payday someday. We thank you that though we ourselves are sinners, that by your grace, by your spirit, you've given to us the gift of repentance. You've revealed to us the good news of the gospel and in our hopelessness and lost condition, we have believed the good news that Jesus Christ has died for sinners and we have become his people. And we thank you for the mercy that we have in Christ. And we pray for those tonight who are outside of that and do not know that, cannot say that about themselves. Oh, Father, we plead with you, all of us together tonight, that you will give them no rest, Lord, that they will not be able to go back to their ways and to forget about the things they've heard tonight. Have mercy upon them and save sinners in our midst. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.